0: Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR and The Escape Game. In this episode, I'm having a conversation with Megan Gearhart. She's the author of Gen Intelligence, The Revolutionary Approach to Leading an Intergenerational Workforce. So we talk about how there's four generations at work right now. And instead of working against each other we talk about how these employees can bring their varied skills and experiences to come together as a team to have a lot of success. Megan argues that a team should be comprised of multiple generations. Employees of all ages have tons of insight to offer and there should be trust built between those employees and the different generations. So there's a a lot of great stuff in this conversation about how to maximize your workplace. When you have multiple generations working in the same organization, you're going to get a lot out of this episode It's highly relevant right now. Enjoy next week. We've got Lacey part of pillow. And then the week after that, we've got Vince Molinaro, so much good stuff coming enjoy reach out to me on linkedin instagram twitter i'm all those places would love to hear from you enjoy the episode Megan, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You wrote a book called Gentelligence, the revolutionary approach to leading an intergenerational workforce. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, what is Gentelligence? So maybe define that for us. And why did you write the book?
1: Well, Gentelligence is a term I came up with a few years ago. And it's really about narrating these conversations about generational differences in the workplace in a smarter way. So I define it as looking at intergenerational learning and cooperation in our workplaces as an opportunity rather than framing this dynamic as a threat, uh, which is unfortunately the way that it really has been looked at, um, particularly the last You know 10 or 15 years with our millennials moving into the workplace so it's all about reframing and thinking about what the potential can be uh and intergenerational uh power intergenerational innovation intergenerational learning um rather than focusing on things like generational shaming and bias
0: yeah yeah
1: all of those things that we know happen so that's the the definition of it um And why I wrote the book, you know, I think I've thought a lot about this. So I did a TEDx back in 2017, where I shared the story of where Gentelligence was built. And I won't reiterate the whole thing here, but I think it really came from my experience in the workplace where it was very natural to me, I'm a university professor, that's my day job. And so, you know, my world is all about learning from people who are both older and younger than me. So um, I became a university professor when I had just turned 26. Um, So relatively young, uh, I had a ton to learn. I needed a lot of advice and guidance and mentorship, but it also was very natural for me to ask my students often, first millennials and now Gen Z, their perspective on how they would do things. Um, And so kind of reaching across the generational gaps in both directions has always been the way that I have worked. And when I started doing talks to different companies on generational differences in the workplace, I realized that it wasn't necessarily as clear to other people that there's a lot of potential for learning in framing generational dynamics in that more constructive way.
0: Yeah, I think it was interesting what you just said was cooperation between the generations. What I think most people miss when they talk about the generations at work is just they they define it, they stereotype them, put them in these giant groups, but they don't really take it a step further and say, well, this is an opportunity. We can get these generations to work together because they're all good at something a little different and there's just so much knowledge to be gained. So, I mean, is that kind of the reason why you wrote the book in the first place as far as just outlining ways that these generations, they all have something to give and there's a way for them to work together and, you know, produce and and do all the things that generations working together in cooperation could do.
1: Well, I think what was fascinating to me was that we know from, you know, best practices and diversity and inclusion, cross-cultural management, I mean, HR professionals, um, people who study organizational behavior, we know a lot about the right ways to do this to effectively manage diversity and for some reason none of that is being applied to generational or age differences like continuing the whole you know time we were writing the book just absolutely fascinated on how there was this disconnect between how we effectively manage and leverage differences and the fact that those strategies and tools were not being applied to generational differences or age differences. And we talk about both in the book. Um, we know that there's all of this latent potential, as you said, diversity of thought and perspective is linked to someone's life experience. So in terms of generational differences, growing up in a, a different time and history uh, means you experience different things. You had a different way of growing up, different norms, different views on work, different kinds of knowledge now, right? That we have, you know, as you said, every generation has similarities with other generations, but also has really great, important differences that make a lot of sense. So we're leaving all of that on the table when we sort of opt for this I call it the us versus them mentality where somehow we're engaged in this <laughs> intense battle. And if I win something, then you lose something. And so you can't have my ideas or my insight. It's really unproductive. And it's so counter to what we already know works with other kinds of diversity. And somehow this was a missed, you know, we missed yeah. the memo that we could apply these same things to generational differences. So that's the gap that we're trying to close with this work.
0: Yeah, throughout their book, you you mentioned the word generational war, and and it's funny because I've never heard anybody use it that way. But when I was also noticing that you'd wrote an editorial that says we blew it with millennials, I, I'm a millennial myself, and I know what was happening. It was other generations like millennials are high maintenance; they're they need feedback all the time. Like all these little like just digs at a generation and. I want to know why why you say we blew it with millennials. I think I know the reason, but I'm just curious what that article said.
1: Well, I think we would see generational tension goes back a really long time. I collect yeah. these uh, magazine and book covers that have sort of laid out that tension for as long as as we can remember and then from beyond then. But the millennials really brought it to this Fever pitch. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. One, the the sheer size of the millennial generation. So I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, We're kind of what we call a sandwich generation between baby boomers and millennials. So we weren't too much of a force, maybe a mild annoyance, but not a force. Um, Whereas millennials, just size wise, uh, quite a force. And then very different. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The biggest one, I believe, is the parenting philosophies that many millennials, and I don't say all millennials, because that's where stereotypes come from, but that were very frequent in the millennial generation, which actually were developed by the baby boomers. The youngest baby boomers are the parents of our oldest millennials, and you know these are people who were very driven, they wanted the best for their kids, they worked really hard to create opportunities for their children that maybe their parents weren't able to provide for them. So it all came from this really good place, but it, it led to the millennials being raised with sort of a central focus in the family, right? We want to invest in Brandon. We want to make sure that he, you know, gets... Classes and lessons and sports and pursues his interests and figures out who he is as a person, which is all great stuff. Like how fantastic! And millennials were the most educated and most developed generation we had by the time they got to universities and workplaces. We'd never seen a generation that had had so much sort of opportunity and development. So that is a double-edged sword, right? It's it's great in that millennials were ready for opportunities and things that other generations were not at a young age but they also expected to have more of a voice and a say so because they had often had that voice in their families growing up so it was a very big 180 from the children should be seen and not heard and when they showed up in my classroom and you know later somebody else's boardroom and wanted to have an opinion or wanted to be giving something a bit more important to do it was seen as very entitled like who do you think you are kid like you just got here like sit down and put your head down like we all had to entitlement right and i make the argument that if you look at it from one direction it looks like entitlement but if you look at it from another direction we call this adjusting the lens in the book it's actually quite proactive right they're they're going after what they believe is important they've been brought up to do that. So why we were also surprised that they continue to do it at work, I'm not sure. But that that's really where I think, you know, as we sort of got this pushback of I get this question a lot, like, can you fix them? Like could you give them the memo that they can't do this? And and that's not the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is, well that's interesting. Why is that happening? Is it coming from a place that I understand? We have a lot of shared values across generations we need to acknowledge. And so if what they want is to build respect and have impact, well, I want that too. I just don't show it the same way that potentially a millennial or Gen Z-er would. So, right. you know, kind of taking a step back and trying to build understanding instead of sort of this idea that we're in some sort of fierce my way or the highway kind of mindset that is not going to work.
0: There, I think I read this right. There's four generations I work right now, so we got the boomers, Xers, millennials, and Gen Z now. And I'm curious because, like with what you just said, there's so much to learn about each of the generations. There's a different lens that we need to look through. Are there any employers that you can think of that are doing a really good job of bringing those four generations together? Because I think you even wrote at one point, you're talking about age 17 all the way up to age 70 or something like that. So there's a huge age difference between the youngest generation and the oldest, and they're all in the same workforce. So, I mean, employers probably have to do a really good job of making sure that these these generations understand each other and can work together. So I don't know if you've seen anything, but I'm curious what what you've seen
1: we went digging you know it was really important for this book that we take not just you know academic research or even hr best practices but interviews and case studies and we're trying to start a movement here with gen and so we wanted to go out and say like who's doing this well you know who gets this who understands the unique value that each generational identity could potentially bring if it was managed well. So we did find some examples like you know these pockets of best practices. Um you know one of the the ones that stuck out to me and I had to really go digging on this to be honest is I looked at best companies to work for. They have these lists or they used to have them for every generation. So they had for baby boomers, for Xers, for millennials and Gen Z, um, the only company, and and I could be fact-checked on this to see if it's right, but but in our research um, at the time that we looked, Workday was the only company that had appeared on all of those lists. So that caught our attention. We thought that was really interesting. Like, What are they doing so that all generations feel like that's the best place to work? And a lot of that is about hearing Their needs and getting their input. And so we interviewed some people there about, you know, they have some formal programs and often this is things like employee resource groups. We see, you know, some organizations we talked to uh, had things like both mentorship and what is often called reverse mentorship.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. And
1: we make a plea in the book and I have to give a hat tip to our editor. So, we had started, you know, talking about it as reverse mentorship and in her notes she said, that doesn't seem like a very intelligent term. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, right. What a great call out. So we we changed the book and actually our suggesting or advocating that it be called mutual mentoring, right? If we call it reverse, then the idea that you could teach something to me is somehow backward when that's exactly what we're trying to suggest with intelligence. So I think it's really interesting to find the different pockets of that. So I think places where they're aware that there's different kinds of knowledge and expertise and they want to tap into that. Um, So we saw different organizations. One that we highlighted in the book was an organization called Papa, which was just in the news um, just this last week. But it's a great organization that even the business model is Gentelligent. It's about pairing um, young people, mostly college students with senior citizens um, for companionship. Oh,
0: I love that. Like
1: just sort of a, hey, there's great things to learn on both sides. What would happen if we paired them together? And now it's this highly successful you know, healthcare company. And so I think we found some formal programs within companies that we thought were Gentelligent. We found some business models that spoke to the power of Gentelligence. And we just we crammed every story and example we could um, into the book.
0: Hey, it's Brandon. I'm going to take a quick pause to tell you about An amazing experience that I just had recently with the escape game. I played a remote adventure with the escape game with uh, some team members at Xenium and what we did is we logged into Zoom and met our host for the escape game and our game guide who's in the escape room at the time. And we've done in-person escape rooms before and we always had a blast. I was skeptical that virtual would be as great, but it was so much fun. We had a blast and to top it off, we escaped with eight minutes to to go. So we just had so much fun. The communication, the team building and the teamwork was fantastic. Uh, I highly recommend it if you're looking for a fun team building experience virtually. The escape game is the top escape room company in the United States with 20 locations. And like I said, you can play virtually now. So if you can't find one of those locations in person, play virtually. It's just as fun. You could play anywhere over the world over zoom. It's perfect for virtual team building, uh, how it works. You log into zoom. You're met by your host who gives you clues and instructions, and your game guide is your eyes and ears in the escape room. You can point out what to grab, where to look, and the game guide will do all of that. They're basically your eyes, ears, hands, and feet, as if you were in the room yourself. So you work together to decipher puzzles, and you just try to escape with 60 minutes. And like I said, my team, we got out with eight minutes to remain. So we, we accomplished it. It, the escape game is not only fun, but it's great for team building, improving communication. And, you know, everybody needs a morale boost right now. So highly recommend it. Uh, I want to I want you to book an escape game for yourself for your next virtual team building activity right now. My listeners can get 10% off a game when they go to the escape dot com forward slash podcast. That's the dot com forward slash podcast. Don't wait. That's theescapegame.com slash podcast. Get your ten percent off now. Now back to the show. Are you finding that there is generational competition happening at work? So if there's you know a larger organization where there's big groups of people and they, you know, tend to identify with a certain generation, are they are they competing against each other in, in one way or another?
1: Unfortunately, yes. Um, depending on the industry, sometimes, you know, we end up seeing different dynamics. So certainly the tech industry is pretty famous for its issues um, with age discrimination against older uh, workers. So lots of things in the in the news about that. that there's this bias that old people don't Understand tech, which is there's no research supporting that's true. And what does old mean, right? A lot of older workers invented the tech that we're claiming they don't know.
0: Exactly, exactly. There's
1: no evidence. I mean, there's lots of evidence that that older generations use technology differently and for different purposes, but not that they struggle to use it. So, age bias in sort of tech industries like that. And then in manufacturing, we're seeing an interesting dynamic where I'm not sure I would go as far as to say it's a bias, But we have this weird dynamic where, you know, Gen Xers and millennials, many of us didn't go into manufacturing or trade jobs because it just wasn't something we were encouraged Mm. to do. And so if you think about people, you know, who work in the skilled trades, a lot of them are older, right? They're in their 60s and 70s. They're baby boomers. They're going to retire when they're ready to retire. And it's leaving this huge gap. And so they're facing um, a really, in agriculture as well, we're seeing a big dynamic. I talked to those audiences where you know, how do you attract Gen Z to those opportunities? And then how do you make it an opportunity that's appealing, right? So shipbuilding, Huntington Ingalls Industry is one um, organization that we highlight in the book that needed to fill that pipeline. And so the way they were trying to appeal to younger workers was to you know, talk about the fact that there's a ton they can learn from the older people who've been there for, you know, decades and decades. But also they would love to have them bring their digital savvy, their 3D printing, their ability to code, like merging those kinds of knowledge together. So different industries, I think, struggle. Um, I think now in the post-COVID world, you know, there's this issue of, of scarcity, of jobs, um, concern about opportunities, reentering entering the workforce. And I think that's going to fan some of these, these tensions and this perceived competition a little bit more than we want to see.
0: And the outcome of the book is really about intergenerational cooperation. And you list a few roadblocks in the book about what might get in the way of that happening uh, the way you see it. What are, what are some of those roadblocks that you see right now?
1: Right. So we talked about four different roadblocks. I'll highlight a couple of them. As you mentioned earlier, generational shaming is a big one. Like all you have to do is scroll your newsfeed, right? Like the clickbait (laughs) headlines are just horrifying. Oh, it's terrible. Well, and I get it. I When I write for some news outlets, and I'm always like, little known fact, news outlets name the pieces rather than the people who write them. And so I'm always sort of surprised. Do
0: they ever change the subject or the title to, like, if you write a piece and they're like, "Mm, well, we want to make it more clickbaity, so we're going to change the title. I'll
1: come up with something I think is really clever and normally, like, if I'm working on it with my editor, like, they'll take the title off. And I don't know if that's the case for all outlets, but they want something that's going to be a hook, right? And yeah, so it makes sense. Most of the time, I've been pretty lucky. One or two, I've been like, oh, I don't know that that's intelligent I'm not sure how I feel. But, you know, I think generational shaming and, and particularly the millennials, as, as we talked about earlier, got the, the brunt of that. And now they got it from older generations and now they're actually getting it from Gen Z. So the millennials are getting it in, in both directions. So generational shaming. And then of course, okay, boomer was, you know, we have to mention that and generational shaming is, is not okay. So that's one. Age bias, which is both towards younger and older people. So again, it's been called one of the last sort of socially acceptable biases. So that's not to say that other kinds of bias aren't prevalent and raging, but we aren't very apologetic about making a remark or joke about somebody based on their age, old or young.
0: Okay. So what is Gen Z saying about millennials right now? I'm not as plugged in. I want, I got to know now.
1: Yeah. I mean, right now it's still sort of in the TikTok, Instagram universe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Gen Z was the OK Boomer sort of instigator. Millennials, maybe younger millennials a little bit. But you have to remember, like our mul- oldest millennials are 40. So, you know, Gen Z used OK Boomer sort of as a proactive pushback that they weren't going to be shamed about their age the way millennials were. Like we <laughs> yeah, weren't going to fuck up with that nonsense. And they knew how to use social media better than the rest of us. And they were going to make that go viral, which they did. So kudos to them on that not intelligent, but it was, you know, certainly was viral. So what I've seen in the last couple months is just, you know, a lot of these sort of click baby, like Gen Z wants millennials to know that X, Y, and Z aren't cool anymore. Yeah. Right. Like I've, you know, see, I've
0: seen that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's where it's starting. It's sort of like, Hey, millennials, you were the cool hip kids for a long time, but you're not anymore. And so I feel like millennials just got done sort of exerting their rightful place in organizations, not as the youngest people on the totem pole. And now Gen Zs are sort of pushing back and, and not wanting to be painted with that same brush. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen it too much in the workplace, Brandon. Good. Okay. But I've seen it most in social media so far. So hopefully that's where it
0: will stay. Yeah. So, shame is one of the roadblocks. What was another one?
1: So, generational shaming, age bias, both again, and and it's towards older as well as younger. So, there's no federal legislation um, protecting younger workers under age 40 from discrimination. There's some state legislation. But just like older people are often thought to be resistant to change or not good at tech. Younger people are often judged to be less reliable, entitled, um, things that, again, we don't have any research showing that that's actually true. Fickle, not loyal, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The last two I'll do together just to sort of be concise about it, but it's perceptions and misperceptions about values as well as knowledge. So I said earlier that, you know, there's a lot of debate out there about, you know, are generational differences a real thing. And I always say they're not everything, but they're not nothing. Like generational identity is a layer of identity just like, you know, where you grew up or your religion or your political affiliation. Like it impacts how you view things at work. And that's why it's important to to acknowledge, but not stereotype. But We have research showing that while certain values are more frequent in certain generations, there's four values that all generations share. Like At our core, regardless of your age or generation, you want to be seen as competent, you want to have connection to other people, you want to do things that are meaningful, and you want to have some degree of autonomy. And it's just like I said before, we think that we're so different. And I don't understand kids these days or <laughs> you're old school, but our values are the same. It's just, you know, largely the same. It's just that the way that we demonstrate that can be very different, right? The norms of what it means to get respect or connect with someone for a Gen Zer is probably very different than it was from a boomer when they were their age. And so that's where you get miscommunication and you get frustration and, you know, things where you think someone's being entitled and they think they're being proactive, but it's yeah. coming from wanting to have impact, for example. And then the last kind the last roadblock is about, as you mentioned at the beginning, knowledge differences. So for the first time in history, we have a situation where because of the development of the internet, digital technology Age is not directly related to knowledge and expertise in all things, right? So we're seeing it's very true that there's certain kinds of knowledge that younger people have in greater amounts than older people. And that's a tough one for a lot of us, right? That that suddenly you know, there's things that my 15-year-old knows, although I hope he doesn't listen to this because I'll never hear the end of it, that I don't (laughs) know, right? But being intelligent, why wouldn't I just ask him, right? Can you explain this to me? Like, it's this willingness to say, I acknowledge that you know something I don't, and I'm okay with that because I also know things you don't, and that's what we're all here for, right? And so, you know, just acknowledging that I can have a lot of unique and important knowledge and expertise to share with you. And that doesn't mean you somehow don't have any to share with me. It's not a, you know, a fixed pie that there's only so much knowledge to go around and we all need to be able to own some of it. So those are some of the roadblocks. And, and we talk about with these intelligent practices, you know, part of it's about breaking down bias and the other part is recognizing the potential.
0: Exactly. Well, one of the principles uh, for breaking the roadblocks down was strengthening trust, and I love I love this because I think it's a fantastic way to get people working together. If you can gain trust with one another, it doesn't happen overnight. So I'm curious if there are ways in which you could help these generations build trust across the generations that you talked about the mutual mentorship already, but is there other things that teams are doing to break these barriers down and strengthen trust?
1: We hear a lot these days about the importance of psychological safety and Amy Edmondson's great work on that. And I think that's what this particular, so we have these four practices of gentelligence and strength and trust means It's not a natural dynamic. The natural dynamic in a diverse workforce, particularly an age-diverse workforce, and research supports this, we found some great studies on this, is that left to its own devices, age diversity, generational diversity is going to be... A mess, You know, there's all of these reasons why we're not going to see things the same way and all these potential areas for misunderstanding. So it has to be managed. It has, you know, leaders have to go in and proactively give opportunities to strengthen trust. So research actually supports that one of the best ways to do that is to promote intergenerational interaction. So if we're not prompted otherwise, or we're not facilitated in some way to do it, we'll all sort of stay with our own similar age groups. And so strengthening trust in part is creating opportunities for people to work across generations, to find those places where you know some things I don't know that are really useful and helpful. And if I'm willing to ask for your help, The total, you know, end product of the work is better and vice versa. So, from an organizational perspective, creating opportunities to get people to work together on meaningful things where they all have different talents and perspectives to lend and being willing to listen to them, right? Not just putting the junior people at the table, but telling them right. to keep their mouth shut. I have really simple tools with this. You know, I use this every day in my work is I say to my, my students, and I have students that work with me in the leadership center here. We talk about like, what's our shared goal? What is it that we're trying to accomplish in this project, this initiative? And then I say, so how would you do it? And oh. in just that I'm asking, I'm, I'm being yeah, curious, yeah. right? Like how would you do it? Because I want to hear what they have to say. Now let's be really clear that I'm not assuming they're going to nail it on the get go because they've probably not had a ton of practical experience, but that doesn't mean they don't have something to contribute. And maybe it's this really great innovative idea that I never would have come up with because I'm sitting here with 20 years of experience of doing it a certain way. So if I say, so how would you approach this? Given that we're all clear on our goal and our mission and what we're trying to accomplish, how would you do it? And they'll share all these ideas. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are brilliant. Some of them are, you know, really insightful. And then by, you know, making sure that I then listen Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: ask them questions.
0: I was going to say, I I think it just aligns them to whatever goals of the team is. So if you're asking that question, it's so simple, but it it gives them a, a voice. And then obviously, if you're asking the question, you're probably listening and then it starts a conversation, and I think it aligns teams really well. So I love that.
1: Yeah, it does. And then by me asking, they think, "Oh, I'm respected. My opinion is worthwhile." She actually thinks I might have something to to add. So then when I say, "Okay, I love that. I love this idea. Let me give you some feedback or some things to think about." You know, here's some practical things I'm concerned about, or here's why the organization might have trouble with that idea? How could we overcome that? So now here I am stepping in with my expertise or my experience to help shape that idea, to make that idea more practical, not shut that idea down. And they're listening more than they would otherwise because I already listened to them. I believe they have value. So now they want to hear what I think. And then together we end up with something much better. So that's practically, you know, we, we try to put as many practical tools in the book as we can, mm-hmm. you know, how, how trust occurs and how, how we strengthen that.
0: How would you structure a team using this gentelligent ideas? So I don't know if there's like you're forming a team and, and you're like, okay, I'd need people across different generations and this is how it's going to be most affected. Like how would you go about structuring a team? So it's intelligent?
1: I think it's the same way we would want to do it with any kind of diversity, right? Is we think, who do we want at the table or who needs to be at the table or who might potentially be able to add a perspective here that we might not otherwise get. And thinking about, so the example you, I think you referenced earlier is often we think like, "Ah, I don't know, like, I feel like we have diversity, but is age diversity or generational diversity represented, right? Right? And you might not think, well, what do I want a 25 year old, or why would we want a 68 year old here to talk about the changes we're going to make in five or 10 years? Well, both of them need to be at the table and everybody in between, because What perspective are you missing or are you not getting by not having them there? Right. And again, that's when you build a team, you always want to think what's the unique perspective or expertise that we want to make sure we don't miss. And we just have to expand that consideration to include age and to include generations um, and not be assuming, right? The first intelligent practice is resist assumptions that they don't need to be there because they're too old or they're too young or they wouldn't have a perspective. Um, we don't know till we get them at the table.
0: How do you recommend em- employers use this idea of gen intelligence as a strategy in their organization? Is there something to do? I'm, I'm just curious how, like if somebody reads your book, they're like, okay, yeah, I get this. But how do you implement it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that was always in our head as we were writing the book. So I'll give you the, the sort of what could we do right now and then what we're working on on our end to continue to hopefully move the movement forward. So we structure this around certain practices and I think part of it is a baseline understanding of where you're at right now. So we knew there were organizations that had done a great job combating age and generational bias, but maybe that's as far as they had taken it. So for them the practices of you know strengthening trust and expanding the pie we put some tools in there you know really practical ones we created a toolkit around the idea of how do you find those opportunities for collaboration and learning that maybe you hadn't thought about but then there's going to be organizations that are just in that sort of generational locking horns battlefield stage where they've got some work to do around breaking down biases and stereotypes and and those require different tools. I mean some of it's it's you know training around implicit bias having to do with age. Some of it might just be more, you know, pulling out the elephant in the room. I have a training exercise that I offer through my mailing list as a download that are just scenario conversations. Like here's a workplace situation you'd run into any day of the week let's hear from every age group and generation about how they view that situation. How would they react? Why would they react that way? So it's a lot of awareness. It's starting conversations. It's looking for opportunities. It's really trying to just shift your lens is the thing that is, I think, the the first critical step that you might be leaving this gigantic amount of potential on the table by not finding ways to kind of combine these, these different generational identities and, and ways of thinking. And that's what we need. We need all hands on deck moving forward. We absolutely need all of that sort of collective genius at play for the future of work. On a practical note, um, we've gotten such a great response, early response to the book and the work and the talks that we've done. Um, So we're currently developing a um, gentelligence measure. So I've gotten a lot of requests for that. So we're doing construct validity work on that as we speak to make sure it, you know, holds water. We got to make sure we do the analytics on that. And then I'm excited um, about a partnership. My co-authors and I are are developing with some other people that are really passionate and have experience in intergenerational learning and in the change space. Uh, We're creating a Gentelligence lab. That's what's the name of it is, um, which is going to be sort of a coming together of experts that can take organizations from just introducing them to the idea of Gentelligence to what's the day-to-day training look like within your organizations to actually execute on these. Ideas, So, you know, we're getting down to the practical workbooks and tools and steps and training to take this from a concept to, uh, to a day-to-day uh, actually learning and development piece. So I'm really excited that it's catching on and, and hopefully within the next couple months we'll be rolling out some of those things.
0: Megan Gearhart, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, where can people find you or connect with you? And I think you even said you had a TEDx talk too, so maybe uh, point people to to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me on my own website, which is. ProfGerhart.com, And that's also my handle on Instagram. Uh, It's also my handle on Twitter. And so you can find me there. That's the easiest place as well as, um, as I said, I'll be coming out with more information about the Gentelligence Lab. The book is coming out on June 8th. So we're excited about that. And we should be doing a lot more sort of speaking and talking about the topic as we get closer. And everybody can pick up the book on uh, Amazon or your favorite bookseller. You can pre-order it now and everybody can have it in their, their mailbox on June 8th. It's available on Kindle. And we also have an audio book that's coming out. So we're excited about that as well.
0: Is it your voice or did you hire somebody for that? You
1: know, it's not my voice. I got a lot of questions about that. Maybe the next one will be my voice. So um, our, our uh, publisher podium books, gave us some great candidates and tape Good. and just amazing talent. Um, so we're excited about the narrator we have for the book and we're excited to hear that. So
0: exciting. We'll keep up the great work and thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Brandon. I really, really appreciate it.